Hello, my name is Brandon Boat with the Theater of Public Policy. Normally for our podcasts, we feature an excerpt from one of our live shows. We talk to someone about a public policy issue, and then a team of improvisers brings it to life through unscripted improv comedy. However, there's currently a mayoral election happening in Minneapolis for 2017, and we thought we would sit down and talk to the candidates, because if nothing else, it would help us decide who to vote for. Our guest today is Aswar Rahman. At just 23 years old, filmmaker and entrepreneur Aswar Rahman is the youngest candidate for Minneapolis mayor. His passion and detailed positions on a wide range of policy issues has won him consideration among a field of well-seasoned contenders. We talked with Rahman about the city budget, how he'd use the authority of mayor in regard to hiring and firing of police officers, and whether he'd defend a city minimum wage increase he's long opposed. Hi, my name's Tane Danger. Uh, I'm here with Brandon Boat, who we're the co-founders of the Theater of Public Policy. And we uh, decided uh, four years ago we wanted to talk to folks who were running for mayor of Minneapolis, where the Theater of Public Policy is based. And we invited some of them to appear on our show. And this time around, uh, we thought it would be much more fair, probably, if we actually were able to get all of the folks who are running for mayor uh, on the show. And thankfully, there are not 35 candidates this time around, as there were in 2013. So uh, we've invited uh, all the mayoral candidates to come and talk to us um, and uh, have a conversation. And we're hoping to release all these podcasts for everybody. And I'm very excited, first up... Uh, Aswar, and I always want to ask, like, how to, is it Raham to pronounce your last name? Is that it's Rahman? Rahman. Yeah. yeah there See, uh, there we Once go. Once one thing, never forget it. That's good. Uh, so thank you so much for yeah. for being here. Absolutely, uh, it's gonna be fun. It is, and I'm actually really, I'm really excited that you're our first guest because you've sort of developed this reputation of being uh, like willing to take on all <laughs> kind, like almost any issue and talk about anything and uh, any other candidate. So I feel mm. like this will be a very good prep for me for thinking about everybody now yeah, because yeah, you're yeah. going to just tell me everything I'll, about I'll everyone. I'll prime you to just think of them exactly the way I perceive them, yeah. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry to the future candidates who will be on here. but mm-hmm. uh, So, oh um, so I, I do kind of want to start, I, and I'm hoping to start this with everybody, is just uh, and uh, asking a big, broad question, which is just why... Why mayor? You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of ways I think that you know, we all think about how we influence our communities and our cities. And in particularly in Minneapolis, where we have this sort of pseudo weak mayor system, right. I think that it's a fair question. Why is that the place to do whatever it is that you want to do? Yeah. So there's great things about Minneapolis. There's some not great things about Minneapolis. So great things. We have the park system. We have overall our city is doing very well. As a city, we're very rich. Our bad things are that we have one of the highest poverty rates in the country. We have incredible disparity when it comes to education, income, entertainment, all that. But, of course, there are many ways to work on that besides being mayor. So the, the thing that the mayor controls, despite the weak mayor system in Minneapolis, is the budget and the police. And so the budget is one of those things. I can give an example. Um, the incumbent mayor could uh, just out of her own volition, like out of just simply that she wants it, she was able to spend $11 million on a half a block park. 
So, as a line item on the budget, we are, as a city are going to spend $11 million on a, half a block park this year. That's the kind of budgetary power the mayor of Minneapolis wields. My whole thing is with that same kind of power, we can do so much better things in the city. So, like, my big things are investing in early childhood care and expanding tuition-free higher education. And it all ties back into the, um, the poverty rate in our city, which is per capita higher than New York City even. So, yeah, it comes down to the mayor controls the budget, and the budget is one of the biggest instruments for change in this city. And one of the biggest things I want to change is this incredible disparity and opportunity we have, especially along ethnic lines in the city. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, that budget piece because just – and I think of this partially as a a civics lesson for folks in in (laughs) Minneapolis. But so the – in Minneapolis, the mayor proposes the budget, but the city council votes on it. So, right. so just to, uh, so yeah, when yeah. you're talking about some of these, like, oh, I would move these funds for a, a city park over to uh, mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z. Wh- how how would that actually? Do- don't you need to actually have some so, friends yeah. on the city council? Oh, for sure. And like we've already talked to city council members. I run this past uh, a large number of them, not a majority yet, but they are all very much on board for, for instance, funding the MCTC Power Review Program, which would make it so that anyone in the city could get a uh, at least an associate's degree through the program so yeah like you said um the the biggest the the heart of it is that the mayor doesn't really propose the budget they craft the budget like so they spent a whole year going to department through department getting recommendations for everyone i mean it's a long process and at the end of it end of like a seven month or six month process they come up with this proposed budget but then when it goes to city council they're supposed to either approve it disapprove it they're supposed to debate it Usually what happens, though, is they find a couple of sticky points, they debate that over, and then they either vote it through or they don't, those specific points. It's very rare for a budget to get worked up, up and down completely. Um, so that's where a lot of the influential power of the mayor is. And I would bet that there's not a single Minneapolitan who doesn't want expanded uh, educational opportunities for for families coming out of like impoverished or students coming out of impoverished families. So uh, sure, of course not. That'd be weird. That'd be a weird yeah, thing yeah. to run on. Like <laughs> I want, I want more poverty uh, right, 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 or exactly. impoverished schools. But mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I, you would assume uh, right. that a mayor is working also with council members during that long process before uh-huh. they propose it to folks. So isn't there potentially just a piece where it's, you know, yeah. they've already the reason that there's maybe not a big up and down fight over it is because they've already worked through a lot of that behind the scenes. I would hope I wish that was the case. It does. It very much isn't. It's just it's it's uh, it's the case. of, for instance, like, the, like that eleven million dollar park. The mayor actually asked. for. We're 20. talking about the Commons Park downtown. Is no, that, this no. is the uh, convention center. Plaza. The convention center yeah. plaza. OK, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. So this and, was OK. And the Commons Park I also got a lot of problems with but the convention center plaza is one of those like blatant things that stands out. Uh, it just doesn't make absolutely no sense. So the mayor Hodges asked for $21 million for it. The city council talked her down to $11 million, But then when the city's own review board, so they have the, uh, what is it, Capital Long Range Improvement Committee. So they're this room of really qualified people who go through every single potential infrastructure investment. Mm-hmm. And I think it was something like uh, 97 uh, items were on that list. And this park was 95th. And they recommended zero dollars investment. But the mayor nonetheless asked for $21 million in her first proposed budget. City Council talked her down to 11, but still, that's $11 million in a city of 400,000 people that's going to be going to yeah. a park generally for tourists. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense, yeah. 
I, the, so and this is just one more, like, sort of the mechanics of how this stuff works. Because, I mean, in theory, the mm-hmm. city council could have just gotten rid of that, right? Oh, yeah, they could yeah. have. And a lot of them publicly said they wouldn't support it at all. But nonetheless, it made it through because they have things in the budget they want to get through. Sure. And so they don't want to rock the boat too much in case that jeopardizes the funding sure. for them. I mean, because there were some city council members who were very, very supportive of that particular, of the- like... Uh, of the convention center plot? Yeah. Really? Tell me some more. Because I, I've, anyone I've talked to, they've been like, yeah, I thought it was awful, but we couldn't do much about it. Um, okay. So, uh, well, let's try. So one of the other things uh, you've, you've talked about is, oh, uh, capping uh, property taxes mm-hmm. for four years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I was curious, uh, and this is, uh, this is a weedsy maybe as we get, is that capping uh, property taxes or capping the levy? Or how do you, and, and this is just yes. an excuse for us to talk through what a levy is. Okay, perfect. Well, yeah, it, my proposal is basically to fix the, or stabilize the per capita property tax. So for every new citizen added to Minneapolis, we would be allowed to raise the property tax levy only proportionally to that new person. Right now, it's a ratio of two to one. For every single new person that's come in over the past four years into the city, we have raised the property tax levy per capita double. And so my whole thing is that makes absolutely no sense. The city's not growing that fast. The needs of the city isn't growing that fast. So my whole thing is, yeah, stabilize the per capita property tax. So individual homeowners or renters in Minneapolis would, on average, not see their property tax rise. Because, and just to talk through this difference between a property tax and a levy, is the levy is saying we're going to try, this is the amount of money that we're raising. And so Mm -hmm. if you have more people, in theory, the actual number that the percentage that folks are paying is lower, mm-hmm. uh, and if, if the levy stays if fixed, if the levy yeah. stays fixed, and there. so so uh, I'm all for growing the levy with the proportion the city's growing, but at the proportion the city's growing. How do you growing. figure that out? I don't. I just oh, don't know. So yeah, I mean, four hundred thousand people. I, I remember the exact numbers. It's something like no, I mean, like, how do you figure million. out how quickly the city will grow? Because you don't just sort of change the property tax. It's not just sort of like I don't think the mayor's office has like a dial for like the. No, well, I mean. Every year they come with a new budget, and the new budget has a new levy attached to it. So, I mean, if um, we have pretty good statistics on how much the city's growing per year, and there's a lot of measures to figure out at what rate we're growing. And so if we were able to just pinpoint that, let's say 10,000 people came into the city in 2016, then uh, 400,000, I mean 10,000 or 400,000, just find out the percentage, and then that's how much we would raise the levy. So it would be a on-principle fixing the budget to the to the speed of the city's growing because right now we're spending faster than we are we are getting income and that pushes out low-income people first and foremost so uh, i think part of what mayor hodges has said in the past about this is a big part of that over the last four years has been this big deal that they passed Mm. in terms of uh funding for parks and streets and that that was uh, a big part of it smoke and mirrors smoke and mirrors you're Uh, rolling your eyes do do you think that that was a bad deal or do you just think that that has nothing to do with it or i think the park board deserve more funding the city has basically been diverting funding away from things like the park board for so long the park board had to go they had threatened to do a referendum in Mm -hmm. order to even get this basic funding that they were asking for so the city of minneapolis has been Spending money in such a direction over and over. I mean, we subsidize so much of the private growth in this city. I mean, we, we spend, I mean, do you guys know about this Meet Minneapolis program? Oh, yeah. We've had the executive director of Meet Minneapolis on the theater of public policy. Wonderful. I'm sure they're a wonderful person. I do not know why the city of Minneapolis is subsidizing our tourism industry. Like, that is a private interest. That's something that the hospitality industry should be working out amongst themselves. We spent $50 million every four years on this Meet Minneapolis program, and I cannot for the life of me figure out how that's more important than 
something like expanding tuition for your education. MCTC gets uh, zero dollars in public funding for their low income program. I mean, it, it, it just it boggles my mind. And that our city has somehow set up to be a defender of people with moneyed interests in the city who are important, who are crucial to the city. But they're private interests instead of public. Anyways, so. no, no. I think that that's really interesting because mm-hmm. you know the the ca- the counter to that, or what a lot of folks on city council now and whatnot would say is these programs bringing people in is a huge boon to Minneapolis, mm-hmm. right? Like the having uh, these different conventions that come in is basically uh, a huge economic plus for the city uh, overall, uh, as well as things like the X Games and the Super Bowl and whatnot. But you don't, you, it doesn't look like you buy that. You're smirking. It, it reminds me of the favelas in Brazil, which they paint colorful colors when the tourist season starts. It's like, come on, we have a Did you just call downtown poverty. Minneapolis a favela? No, no, I'm no. telling you, we have one of the highest poverty rates in the country. And it's like, oh, but we bring in the X Games or the Super Bowl, everything's going to be nice and jolly and but the people who get make the most money off of that are the people who are bringing in the events and the people who are in a position to benefit so already well-developed companies small businesses don't really benefit i mean i work with some small business in uh, in right around the stadium area too and they know that the super bowl is just going to go walk right over them because they aren't going to see any share of that profit they might see like a 10 or 15 percent rise in revenue but yeah so it, it it reminds me of just that pattern of somebody trying to sell the argument this big flashy thing will make our city so much greater but we have one an average native american african family in minneapolis earns a third of what the average white family earns like that is a fundamental disparity and last year we had 1700 of the low-income students in minneapolis want to go to mctc for their low-income program and so these were people who wanted to start a profession for themselves they want to start a great life for themselves nonetheless only 400 of them got in into the out of the 1700 so right now i have 1300 young people in minneapolis who are working a low wage and probably minimum wage job right out of college and they wanted to build a life for themselves so they were denied simply because mct traditionally we are a city that is much much more flexible in sponsoring the super bowl or the x games but not really interested in supporting mctc's low income program it yeah it's just it, it 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 boggles my mind honestly yeah uh so uh, let's talk. I have a batch of different uh, issues. We we asked folks. Um, well, we should ask the candidates. Okay. So at one uh, point, I also want to know where the name Tain Danger" comes from. If that's oh right. yeah, uh, I feel like I've probably explained that on a podcast before. So we'll put that at the end of the episode All right. for so that people can skip it. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, oh okay so. Uh, oh, well, one of the things is you've also been pretty uh, forward about thinking that Minneapolis raising its minimum wage mm-hmm. on its own is not that great of an idea. Oh, no. The way they wrote it out, it's awful. So what does that mean? If you're mayor, do you do you uh, roll it back? Or it's being no. actually it's it's actually in the court right now where uh, Chamber of Commerce is suing the city over mm. it. So if it, would you not defend that lawsuit then? I'm very much more about reforming rather than repealing or destroying something. You know, like, so to me, what I would do, honestly, would be to urge city council, urge the members of city council who also see major problems with this bill, and tell them we have to thicken this pad. Because right now, the way it's written out is basically just a simple, this year, the minimum wage will be this. This year, the minimum wage will be this. This year, it will be this. There's nothing in there about a business if it's incredibly struggling to make up with that. We aren't increasing investment in small businesses through our loan programs as part of it. We should be doing things like that. We should also have an assessment built into the bill, which is something that Seattle did, which is really smart. 
in that they figured out that if, there, if there's something wrong, we want to know what's wrong with the bill if it's one is being enacted. And now they're seeing that beyond $13 an hour, you see some severe damage in their economy. And it's still up for debate because yeah. that, that bill, yeah, that study wasn't uh, free of controversy. Um, so my thing is like these rational improvements to the bill are is the way to go now because I don't believe it's worth going or and, and a mayor for 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 one thing just can't like they can't right. just fully repeal a bill that's not a power so so have. it's I mean you you accept sort of to me I it. accept it and I'm deeply concerned about how it's written now and I'm just itching to get a chance to start shoring up our our you know our defenses around the negative aspects of this kind of bill. But okay, there, so talk us through some of those. I mean, you started to mention them, yeah. but just uh, so, lay it out for us. Right. So, like, like the statistics I talk about, the um, let's say an average African American family or an average Somali family, they earn about twenty thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. That, if you bring that down to an hourly wage, that's ten dollars an hour. And when a Somali person starts a business, which is not something that's rare in this city, entrepreneurship is incredibly high in the Somali community they can pretty much afford $10 an hour. And their neighbor, because of the economic ecosystem within the community, you know, small businesses, you hire your neighbor. You're not going to do a citywide search. You hire the person from within your community, somebody you know, which is something I mean, that's statistically been shown to be a, by and far the case. You know, if you, yeah, you hire from within the communities that you're familiar with, word of mouth is way more important than a resume in situations like that. So now this average income within the community being $10 an hour, the city... It, out of all of its good intentions, is saying, well, you have to pay each other $15 an hour within this economic ecosystem. And in the Somali communities, I mean, I've talked to business owners within the Somali community, I've talked to every, like, minority communities especially, are just, they're, they're befuddled because they're like, how? Are you going to give us more funding to help us do that? Because our income levels are not at that point. So my big concern is that we are a city with a massive disparity when it comes to business ownership. Right. Minorities make up 40% of the city, own 10% of the businesses. That means 90% of the engines of wealth are owned by 60% of the population. So, yeah. So what's the, what's the proposal then in terms of trying to – in terms of the minimum wage? Oh, know, yeah. Initially, to... it would be to not pass a bill like that. It would be to start investing in small businesses and actually push up our average income in our city. So, it would have been yeah. – Yeah. I'm just – I mean because you were oh, starting yeah. to talk about uh, you know, trying to buffer around some of the things Before, that's yeah, already yeah. happening. Mm-hmm. So you, know, you're, you come into office uh, early next year. Right. What, what do you start to do there? The first thing I do is I expand our small business assistance program. So those 2% loans we have right now – I mean, I've talked to people who are who administer those programs, and their biggest problem is they don't have enough minority business owners taking advantage of these, um, and low-income owners. Because if you're a high-income established business, then you know what the city programs are. Then you have the time to you know walk down to city hall or talk to the CPED uh, like uh, staff or whatever. Um, so my biggest thing is expanding those small business assistance programs and massively increasing outreach. So investing heavily in just as in an outreach team for our small business programs. That'd be one of the first steps. The other is creating an assessment program within the bill too. So if it's not going to be passed by the city council, I, as mayor, I have the authority to create a program that I think will be beneficial to the city. And part of it will be to assess the progress of this minimum wage implementation. And if it means partnering directly with the University of Minnesota or some other academic institution like Seattle did, that would be great. So those two are the first steps to make sure that, okay, any small business is severely suffering from this increase. So any small Somali business who is now yeah. unable to pay their employees, they have an emergency fund they can back up on. On the condition that they're using it to pay employees, not to grow their business at It That seems like a huge pro- regulatory program to try and figure that out. Like, I mean, there's for- already programs like that on the, in the books right now. Yeah, I mean, so you, you can get funding for fixing very specific things, like the facade of your store on a very low-income corridor in the city. So it gets right. very fine-tuned as it is. 
And my thing would just add one more to it, which would be if you are having trouble pay, paying your employees the minimum wage, then you can it, you can basically take a loan out at a low interest. Right. And yeah, we the city. I mean, I just I because I have talked to folks. Uh, in the city mm-hmm. who work in something like regulatory services. And, you know, I think that there's a concern that we actually, I mean, a lot of these things already are adding a lot to their plate in terms of our folks complying mm-hmm. with minimum wage, uh, oh, yeah. you know, time off and whatnot. But this sounds like this is a whole nother level of it where we're going to be assessing different businesses on right. did this particular program hurt or how, and I, I mean, I, whether the merits of it or not, I'm just trying to figure is, out is how does it work. Is the regulators are going well, to be overburdened? I'm just trying to figure out, like, how, uh, trying to make it actually work i guess in terms of talking yeah. to, to ask these the folks. regulators yeah. to do their job here's another program does it inco- involve the... hiring a bunch more regulators it might not it might involve hiring better regulators that's the better least of regulators. my concerns so, yeah, at this point it's uh, that isn't i'm much more concerned about the fact that we have you know a quarter of the city living at poverty yeah and the and there's a huge small business community in there too because these are communities that usually don't have at the educational level to get you know, hired in a large corporation or something. So my concern is far more there than how the regulators are doing. Well, no, but I mean, if they're the tool to actually get mm. some of this done, that's what I'm asking about. Then like, if they can't add one more program to their list of 17 programs or whatever it is right now, then yeah, I'll, I'll start a new hiring campaign for regulators. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, one other piece of this that I actually think is uh, something that a lot of folks who are even very pro fifteen dollars minimum wage do mm-hmm. uh, admit is that you know the uh, it would be better probably if it were more regional. I think almost everybody oh, agrees yeah. that it would be better. Um, and I just wonder if that's uh, and, uh, there's a batch of issues like that that would be better if because of the way that Minneapolis is positioned mm-hmm. within a larger metro area and. Uh, how do we actually start building some of that coalition feeling among, you know, a seven-county metro that has very diverse cities? What's the role of a Minneapolis mayor mm. in sort of promoting regionalism, promoting the region to work together? Yeah, I think where we haven't been able to be successful and what we need to do is um, is basically show the, the suburbs, first and second ring suburbs, that it is in their best interest to have a higher minimum wage and it will attract better workers to them. And, of course, that would open up questions of, like, transportation. They would, then they would demand, you know, increasing of the light rail line so that they could have workers coming out from Minneapolis to take up some of these higher-paying jobs. So it, it is a, it's a big old package of things that come along with it, but it, it, the trick is to convince the, the suburban cities and their mayors and their, their leadership in general that it is in their best interest to raise the minimum wage too. Right now, I don't think we have that strong of a footing, especially if 15 is the number we're saying, yeah. then it is going to be a very hard sell. If we were started with something like 1250 or 13, then I think that we had some room for prog- progress there. And we can make the argument that because of the higher incomes generated, we would see more investment in the Met Council so that we could expand our transport lines. I mean, it, it, yeah, it gets very intricate, but I think it, it has to do with making a sensible attempt to negotiate and show that it's a good offer for the suburb, surrounding cities. One of the things, I'm always curious, uh, there's a lot of things uh, we talk about Minneapolis can sort of uh, teach suburbs or that we can try and convince them of. What mm-hmm. What should we learn from the suburbs? What are they, what is, what's something that one of the suburbs or one of the, our, our regional cities is doing that Minneapolis should copy? Um, well, there's a couple of things that come to mind, but the first one is Mendota Heights and how they police. And it might be because they're a city of not that many people. I mean, there were probably 20,000 or something, probably less. Um, but their approach to policing is incredibly friendly. 
and they ask the public's help all the time, even on minor things. They ask for opinions. They ask for input from the city. And um, I think the chief of their police is a young person, too. I think somebody in their mid-30s or something. And uh, she has done an amazing job in making sure that the Mendota police, there's so much animosity between police and communities around our Twin Cities, but in Mendota Heights, it seems to be a much less prevalent case, and there's still a very effective open police department. Yeah, and I mean, other examples come to mind. I think in Eden Prairie, they've done some pretty good work in um, making sure that newcomers, especially like immigrants, are starting to be well integrated in the economy over the city and that but then again Eden Prairie has higher paying jobs to begin with that I mean I could have paid you to do a transition uh that that flawlessly to (laughs) police so thank you uh no because policing obviously is something that Mm -hmm. uh is coming up constantly so you started to get at this but just again um what does how does policing look different under an Aswar administration? Oh, no. uh, does uh, does it is it a continuation of things that are currently happening? Is it a radical redo? Uh, talk us through just sort of what your approach is there. Absolutely. So I think it's a combination of um, figuring out what works, keeping those, and innovating things that don't. Simple enough, but. We're releasing a full police reform plan on Friday, and the core of it is basically this, finding out those massive flaws within the structure of how we've set up a police department in our city and fixing them and like pro- uh, proposing genuine reforms to them, not, not anything like burn the house down because the pipes are busted or something. So yeah, very much genuine reform. And so a, a couple of examples, like one of them, we have awful civilian oversight in the city. We do not have any real way for civilians to point out bad officers and to pull them, you know, to justice and just to show that and that there are officers who get reported nine or ten times for severe things and they get not a single slap on the wrist even. So my big thing is this. The way the charter's written out, right now whenever there's a complaint against a police officer, it goes to a room with four people, two of them police officers and two of them civilians. And they get to decide whether or not it's passed on for further inspection. And then that usually results in some kind of, not punishment, but some, some kind of rectification. And so what happens if it's two civilians and two police officers is that if there's any gray area, I mean, unless it's something so blatant, like that officer did something so awful that not even, like there's no question that this was this deserves punishment. If there's even a gray area, it's like, oh, they broke his arm, but was the suspect fighting back? Mm. Well, I mean, there's all these little subtleties. Every single time the police outvote the civilians, it ends in a deadlock, it doesn't get passed on. Every single time. So the closest thing we have to civilian oversight is this review panel. But it always goes in the favor of the police officer. So how would you change it? Three civilians and two police officers. That just that's that not minimum, just the best amount of change for things to happen. Because if I put three civilians and two police officers, I'm not taking out power away from the police. I'm just marginally adding that that additional vote to the civilian. In that, it'll now be much more much more likely that the truth will win as opposed to this ambiguity letting a bad officer off it's not enough grounds for uh, the police union to get worked up about it it's not enough for oh any... I, I i don't know give oh, them I mean, a yeah, chance yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like I, I people can get worked up about I mean, a lot of stuff so uh, for sure for sure yeah uh, so it's it's what i'm saying is like it's it's better than to say that we're going to take all the police officers off the off this review panel because it is important to like have some context and that just three even really well-educated civilians probably don't know all the you know specifics about about on the ground policing so that's one of the fundamental reforms is okay. that we are going to make a civilian majority police department civilian uh, majority review board mm-hmm. yeah, uh, sure. other pieces uh, civilian majority police, police department yeah. you know oh like goodness. police academy basically right, that right. movie <laughs> uh so uh hilarious uh so what what else that's one are there yes. other ones yeah of course are, yeah um 
the mayor, according to the charter, I was actually shocked to have read this with my own eyes, but the mayor has complete authority over whatever is necessary for good policing in the department. So something that is as blatantly against protocol as shooting across your partner's body in a police car, that's grounds for a police officer to say, I mean, that's, they're, they're basically the CEO, not the police, the mayor to say that as the CEO of this police department, that I'm sorry, you're fired. And because like that is an obvious break of protocol. And that is a bad employee, and they might have made a mistake, fine, but you can get fired for less if you're working at Target or Home Depot. Or so something. talk about, you know, giving the police union something to uh-huh. get up in arms about, talking about the mayor becoming sort of the yeah. active CEO of hiring and firing all police officers. Oh, not all police officers, but in emergency situations like this, and in a situation where something so blatantly bad happens that even the review process is not satisfactory. So we have somebody on paid leave who obviously violated a standard police training thing, which is not you do not put your partner in jeopardy by shooting across their body. Um, so give it in the, talking about like this historic you know, tension that exists between the union and mm-hmm. or the Federation of Fraternal Order of Police. I don't think they're technically a union. Or, I don't know. And them and, the, and City Hall. Um, I'm totally fine with taking personal, uh, personal tension with the institution like that. My worry, for instance, with the Civilian Review Board, that's an institutional thing. So I don't want to sure. create an institution that's going to create a long-lasting animosity from a union. But as an individual, I'm willing to make that call, which is to say that that person as a civil servant did, uh, did not follow their training, did not do their work well enough. So at the very least, they're not going to get paid time off. This is a violent breach of protocol. Yeah. So that, that, that's really where I stand on things like that. And there's a, nine more reform points. I don't have them memorized yet. I sure will before. Yeah. Well, no, I was going to add, this is sort of a, a somewhat of a tangent to this. But yeah. when you you first uh, were running, I went to your website and you had this 200 week plan. Oh, yeah. I couldn't find the 200 week plan anymore. Where did it go? People weren't clicking on it. People people were like, oh, great. You have a 200 week plan. But they were clicking on it and it just didn't work with the site. Aesthetic. It's actually snuck up there. If you put my website slash 200 week plan, you can access it. I can it. still find it. Oh, yeah, you can still plan. find it. And one of the things that happened was we had, I think, 11 different uh, specific missions that we wanted to achieve through that. Three or four of them were consolidated into one. Um, we added a couple more. So now more it's like to- a 198 week plan, and you get to take a two week vacation toward the end? Or- <laughs> yeah, the original 200 had a little bit of like leeway time fi- figured in That's there. Nice. Just, yeah, That's nice. Exactly. Give you some me time. Right. Uh, Self care. Uh-huh. Um, was one of those, if I remember correctly, because again, I couldn't find it today, um, was. Uh, Hiring 100 more police officers? Yes. So we statistically have not been keeping up with the number of police officers we need. So we currently have 800 officers, but our population has gone up by about 40,000 since the last time. that We were at 380,000 people. I think we're getting closer and closer to 420,000 people in the city. And we have about the same number of police officers as we did back then. So we have been dragging our feet on hiring. And my thing is, like, since we need to add more officers, ho, ho, boy, there's an opportunity right there. Because we have a police department that is not representative of the city at all. In that, I mean, they're, I think most of them are you know, really good people, but 95% of them don't live in the city. Should they? Should they? I think it's better if they do. I don't think it's crucial for them Should to do their job. Should there be some sort of incentive for yeah, whatnot? Yeah, that's one of the reforms right there, a residency credit. So if a police officer lives in the precinct that they work in, they will get a sizable housing credit from the city. Everyone wins. They get to live in the neighborhood they serve in. I know a couple officers who do that right now, yeah. and they love it. But there are a lot of officers who are concerned about, well, I don't really want to you know, take my work home with me. And if I live in my precinct, I will be taking my work home with me every single day. Right. Um, and just leaves the option open. So if you want to live in the city, there's a residency credit. My, my nefarious plan is basically to see a police department that's recruited from within the city as much as possible. 
and a hundred new officers. Uh, twenty five a year, yeah. Uh, twenty five per year, mm-hmm. and um, the, there's also been some different discussions on the city council about. What kind of officers are these? Are they all sort of beat patrol cops? Are they uh, uh, community engagement officers? That kind of have you? I mean, have are have you kind of fleshed out what some of these would be? Yeah. Um, so the, the type of officers that we bring in will depend on what the needs of the city are at the moment. So most of the time that ends up being about 70% standard uh, patrol officers or like officers doing the on the ground work, 30% then going to like specialized things like maybe investigations or internal work that happens in the department. Um, to be perfectly honest, like that, that's something I'd rather leave depend to the needs of the police department at the time that we start this recruitment process. So it's not something we'll be able to achieve in the first year or two even because recruitment is a massive process, very interesting. Um, but they will be yeah. so uh, both with this police so 100 new officers I think that the estimate is usually it's something like $80,000 to hire a new officer mm-hmm. so uh, you know you got $800,000 there and then there's a housing piece and we talked about a bunch of other things uh-huh. and you're capping property taxes so I'm just trying to figure out sort of how are you going to pay for this is yeah. there enough are there enough uh, parks that you don't like uh, to <laughs> to pay for these other programs. Well, there are two that I don't like, the Commons and the Convention Center Plaza. But here's the thing. So we ran through the budget multiple times, and we, we scoured it for where are the inefficiencies, and we were able to find over $70 million a year. So total over four years, it would be $283 million in inefficiencies we see. A lot of that is expenditures on what I call vanity projects like that, which are you know purely aesthetic developments of, of areas. Um, and a lot of it are departmental growths. Like there are certain departments that are spending money like crazy. Like I mean, they they, they have increased their budget compared to even two years ago, like twenty, thirty percent. And yeah. I don't understand like where that comes from. Part of it might have to do with the mayor probably not doing as much as she can in terms of vetting whether or not these. Um, these different departments actually have a legitimate reason for asking for these fundings, or is it kind of like they 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 want some discretionary spending? But we have found two hundred and eighty-three million dollars over four years, and within that two hundred eighty-three million, my major three things are covered, and there's enough left over for us to bring the police uh, staffing numbers proportional to the growth of the city. And um, yeah, and that that's basically where the money's going to come from. Um, so I, I want to. I, it's so hard. I, I want to be respectful of your time, but we have. I have some. I, big I got. No, I mean, I was hoping I could eat a cookie while we're doing this. Oh but. yes. All right, listeners. Okay. Uh, uh, the next sound that you hear will be uh, right mayoral in. candidate eating a Chips Ahoy. Um, so uh, I'll I'll ask this question then. Um, uh, I, we got a lot of folks who had a bunch of questions on um, housing mm-hmm. generally. Oh yeah. And so uh, I. I tempted to just ask somebody actually suggested i just ask um does this housing supply affect the price of housing and go yes i mean all right good and now we move on to no uh, <laughs> do you want to say more i mean i think that their question that they well, were getting at is housing prices are obviously going up in a lot of parts of the city oh, yeah. not universally mm-hmm. uh but why is it simply a supply and demand issue, or are there other factors that uh, and what I think do you yeah, supply is a factor in it. And here's the weird paradox of the city: in that we had a much larger population sixty or seventy years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's not really the the sheer lack of space or anything like that. I think for me, it's a combination of zoning laws, and that we have a lot more single family homes than we actually need, and you can start you know, upgrading the multifamily homes. So and- you so you're you're an upzoner. 
uh, in I, terms of like uh, we should we should make it so that uh, places that are currently zoned for like single family, you should be able to build more um, multi-unit duplex uh, apartment. Yeah, buildings I think there. building them intelligently across corridors that are already seeing economic growth makes perfect sense because we have a lot of scenarios in the city where it's a lot of. Um, a, single-family homes surrounding a very high economic uh, right. activity area, and it makes not that much sense to me. Um, and so zoning, yeah, I am an upzoner when it comes to you know, intelligent upzoning, so I wouldn't say What's citywide. Un- Where is unintelligent upzoning? Um, let's see. Wait Park. <laughs> oh, so like, let's say Park. deep on the hilly, the hilly areas of northeast Minneapolis. I don't really know if we need higher density, because mostly because there isn't a public transit line that really cuts through that neighborhood as far as I know. And so it just it doesn't it doesn't bode well for having a high density area within a area that is, doesn't really have greater connectivity with the city. Yeah, but I mean, I also don't want to name too many specific places because then because then, that that hurts votes from those places. Oh yeah, probably. of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, um, uh, although there's some places that would be very much, I imagine, like no, we do not want to be up zone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think working much- with neighborhood organizations and all. I mean, like representatives of the neighborhoods are is important too, but. At the end of the day, I mean, it, there is there is plenty of opportunity. Like I grew up on a in a single family home on University Avenue in Northeast Minneapolis, and that thing is essentially a state highway. So it's a state highway. I mean, they've started changing the zoning laws around there a little bit. So now we're seeing more and more, you know, high density development. Um, but yeah, that's one of those like my home. I know it was just an anomaly because we're like, why is there a sixteen wheeler going by right. our for the front of our house? Yeah. So uh, potentially upzoning is one. Another one mm-hmm. I'm wondering about is Minneapolis has gotten dinged recently in terms of affordable housing for having uh, too many rules around a what defines a family. Uh, so in that terms of like. You uh, are supposed in certain places. You're so limited to how many non-family members can live in your house. So, and I think that that actually probably goes back to another historic thing, where once upon a time there were more mm-hmm. places that a lot of folks who maybe weren't blood relatives like lived in the same place. And so that was one. And then two was uh, we have a lot of design guidelines about what buildings should and could look like uh, in the city. So. How much? Where are those in terms of priority for making affordable housing, uh, housing more affordable in Minneapolis? Absolutely. So we have looked into looking into the definitions of how we describe a family, and it definitely is something that's archaic, a little bit antiquated. And I have some people on our, my team working on this, so I'm not. Really, I don't really know the very specific words that they use, but we are looking at opportunities to start making it so it's more flexible for groups of people to voluntarily live together. I mean, which is something that happens in other parts of town. I just don't want it to be an anomaly. It can be a more common thing. Um, and talking more about development in, in that creating a, most affordable housing is naturally occurring. I think it's something like 75% of affordable housing naturally occurs. So it's private development. Yeah. Naturally occurring now or like um, in the past? Because now. So at, at this moment, and this is coming from the NOAA website or whatever. Yeah. The, um, I mean, I've heard folks say that there basically isn't uh, like the idea of currently uh, like new affordable housing that is unsubsidized is a myth. It's a unicorn. Uh, right. And, and, and that there's n- stuff that we built in the past and we should be trying to preserve that. But actual yeah. new stuff is very rare. Well, so yeah, it would be dangerous to go into absolutes there because it, it is out of every four units. It's most likely three of them were privately developed because there are parts of town that are still you know relatively affordable. And that's where more development is happening. The biggest problem that we have in terms of actually creating new units is that it is financially not feasible for a low-income house. I mean, talking to developers directly, they said by the time they finish building the building, it either better be a luxury condo or it's going to bankrupt their company.
money because okay. they won't be able to pay themselves back. Yeah. So we've done a couple. So what are there any other ones that you do to have more affordable housing in the more city? affordable housing? The property tax stabilization is going to help a lot. So that that basically takes off a little bit of the overhead costs for the developers. So that gives them a guarantee that okay, if you build here, you will not lose that level of income through. So your your rent because right now a rent or a large portion of that bill goes to the property tax directly. Instead, it will go into the hands of the developer. That would help their bottom line more, give them more incentive to actually build in the city. That's part of it. Another one is, yeah, rezoning. I think a combination of those two is, is a good way to move forward. Also, making sure – the third thing is crucial. I don't know why I waited this long to talk about it. But currently, when the city develops a public housing project, we overspend like crazy. We, I mean, there was a really recent development. I forget the specific name of the building, but it was for uh, youth in Minneapolis or like people coming out of families of 18, 19 years old. And – it was specifically for them, and per unit, that thing cost $500,000 for this development. And this is the city page reported on it and everything. Um, and that same unit on the market would have cost a little over 100000 So somewhere along the line, maybe because the city isn't a development company, is that we overspend pretty highly. So if instead we could redirect that funding towards more like, you know, legitimate on the ground like set a per unit cap for how much we will spend and i think that's part of our that's part of our plan too in that we will set a cap for how much it is per unit and create a space efficiency requirement so any public development that goes up in the city will be um required it's currently not in the pro- in the sure. in the books now it'll be required to maximize the use of their space so creating a standard of you know livability you know cleanliness but within those parameters to be able to build the highest number of units plain and simple um what about uh and this probably in some ways touches on a lot of the different things we've talked about but uh we did also get some questions about the mayor's role your role potentially in Uh uh north minneapolis and the investments there both in terms of uh housing which in some ways actually uh, is a different kind of problem. The problem mm-hmm. looks different there because there actually is a vacancy oh, yeah. uh, up there more so. But then in terms of business development and uh, empowering that community to rise uh, back to where it kind of was once upon a time in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and, and grow even beyond that. So I'm curious, uh, North Plans Minneapolis. For yeah. the well, that's, uh, I mean, those 1,700 students I talked about who tried to enroll into MCTC, I don't have the specific number, but I'll mm-hmm. bet you that a large chunk of that were Northsiders, were people who coming from impoverished families who wanted to get a college education, and they were turned away because we don't have a single public dollar going into that program. So of those 1,300 people currently working a low-wage job who wanted a real legitimate profession that yeah. they could build their life off or, or families off of, um, that is crucial. We don't invest nearly enough in education as we should. If we genuinely did, places like North Minneapolis, places that are impoverished the most at the moment, which is not specifically North Minneapolis, even the Ventura Village has a major problem in Northeast yeah. Minneapolis as a strip. Um, That's, so, I mean, I, nobody, I, I don't know. Again, it'd be weird if there was somebody who was disagreeing and like, no, education well, is a we scam. Are, the, the thing is, uh, the, the city is disagreeing. By putting our money in these different places, not investing this, we are, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we are saying that it's not as important to invest in our education as it is in uh, private developments. What I wanted to ask, though, was uh, you give folks uh, an education or opportunities for mm-hmm. educational attainment. How do you, how do you sort of, uh, are there the opportunities, I think is one of the questions that they would say about North Minneapolis. So what's to mm-hmm. stop, you know, I get an education, then I leave, uh, which is 
you know, a problem that we see in rural Minnesota in a lot of cases or whatnot. But why? Why? If somebody wants to leave their city, I mean, it doesn't really like there's nothing we can do about it. But I think people tend to live in the areas they grow up in. By and large, they want to invest in the communities they grew up in. Their families are here. No one leaves just willy nilly. My my big thing is if we're talking about opportunities. I mean, I was just talking to a Northside developer who it, who is looking for workers. He's one of the yeah. very few uh, black owners of a development company, and he doesn't have enough workers. The next day, I go and talk to people representing MCDC, and they're telling me that their program is specifically training people for this program for what this work man needs. So, of course, I, I, I get him in touch because these meetings were not that long ago. Um, and so we have this huge disconnect. I don't have young people being trained yeah. for that job in their own neighborhood, and so it's there. The jobs do. In general, I mean, there are jobs available. There are a lot of now hiring signs up. But unless if you have that basic level of training, which we are passively or actively denying to a large portion of our city, then there's no there's no even question of how, why, why would we see more opportunities even in the near future. You don't think that there are ways that cities like make it so people want to stay more? I mean, I grew up, yeah. in, I grew up in Florida and uh-huh. I left, uh, which, you know, we could talk about at length um uh and i'm much happier now here in minnesota or whatnot and i think it's partially because folks invest in their communities here and they actually want things to work here which is not true everywhere and Mm -hmm. i think that that is both on an individual and sort of a government level so i'm just uh, what what is the role of a of a city government of a mayor in terms of actually wanting people to be here Give people opportunity. Give people actual chances to build a life for themselves. We are dropping the ball consistently for half of the city here. We, I mean, so if we, if we don't feel like this is a city that looks out for us, why would I ever want to invest in the city? I got lucky, you know, because I, I was able to, through a series of I mean, fortunate circumstances, I was able to get the education I want. I was able to work in the arts industry here. I was able to, like, get involved in politics and government here and police. I mean, there's just all these... The opportunities came for me, and so I have no intention ever of leaving the city because I feel like this city looked out for me. I'm going to look out for it. But if somebody is growing up and they, they wanted to go into MCTC and they were told that we're not going to uh, we're not going to fund <laughs> you can't come to this school because your parents are poor. If that's if that's fundamentally what they heard, I expect them to go down to Florida themselves. Then yeah, why wouldn't they move? So I'm saying if we actually want to retain the talent of our city. We have to start investing in the people who actually live here at the moment. Yeah, for anyone listening, don't don't go to Florida. A lot of people <laughs> do that. They're growing fast enough. Mm. Uh, you know, it's probably also with climate change going to sink at some point in the future <laughs> too. So uh, Minnesota is much better off uh, with you here. So um, okay, so we're at the end of our time. So uh, this was actually the the last question I wanted to ask, which uh, Brandon had and came up with, which I really like as a question. Which is okay if you had one thing that you could do as mayor, mm-hmm. and uh, you know if it didn't work, you could do a mulligan. You could just do it over. Uh, and or take it back or whatever. Right. What's like the one like high risk, high reward thing that you would try? Guarantee that every single person in Minneapolis who wants a higher education can get one. Is that is that what's the high risk on that? The high risk is that well, there's the funding issue in it. There's the political will issue in it. There's the lash, the backlash of people who think that oh no, you have to work hard to save up your money and then go to college. I mean, whatever the whatever the crazy nonsense it is. But do you want something higher risk than that? Because we're not doing it now. There's obviously a huge yeah. risk to it. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. I don't know. It, it, high risk could be. You could say, oh, I want to, you know, have 
a subterranean city hall or I could. Uh, uh, I don't, we don't have time for like luxuries like this. You know what I mean? Luxuries. Yeah. Subterranean city hall. Well, where will the mole people vote? Where all the um, mole, it'll be cooler down there. I guess, yeah, it's not always warm It will outside. be cooler down there. That's something we worry about. Yeah, no. I mean, we got um, serious problems in the city and I think it's, it's like it it's important for us to start, you know, standing up and being, this is what we need to do over the next four years. I did have one other, I know I promised that was the last question, oh, but no, somebody not. asked um, on Twitter, uh, have you picked your second choice yet? We have ranked choice voting here in Minneapolis. My second choice, I'm, I'm still on the fence. Uh, too busy Well, you get a second and myself. a third choice. Who's competing for second and third choice? For second and third? I mean, honest, I, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm too busy coming up with my, Coming up with, with, with your with my acceptance strategies. speech for, uh, <laughs> for when you're no, you Once I know, I'll, I'll tell you maybe in private, but once I know. Once yeah. you know. All right. Well, on that, thank you so much for uh, spending this time with us. Uh, it's It's been really uh, helpful for, for us to think through this. And yeah, uh, good luck on the campaign trail. I, I hope that you're having fun with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're doing a lot of cool things. We'll talk about it sometime later. But yeah, we got our campaign truck out. We're going to start a huge get out the vote operation. I mean... Our, our truck now in the city is like we, we run into people and maybe like one out of every four person has seen our right. our vehicle. And, is it, and your truck is constantly filled with water. Is that? Yeah, we got some water. We usually move it back and forth between like a living room setup or if it's a hot summer day, then we go out and we make sure people stay hydrated. That's good. That. Yeah, there we go. The hydration mayor. Uh-huh, the hydration mayor. Well, I mean, I grew up in the city and I know what it's like to be super thirsty. We have <laughs> just, I, well, I mean, the campaign only goes through early November, but if we get like an early freeze, will you have like hot chocolate in the, the oh yeah oh you'd just somebody give you our strategy plan because yeah, yeah that's part of it yeah all right all right well thank yeah, you so much sure. this is great thank you so much thank you for listening these were recorded live at folklore Folklore is a digital experience company with offices in Minneapolis and San Diego. They specialize in digital strategy, user experience, design, and development for small businesses and large corporations alike. Learn more at folklore.digital. Our music was composed by Keegan Fraley. If you want to find out more about the Theater of Public Policy or come to an upcoming show, you can find us on the web at www.t2p2.net.